welcome to episode 10 of the F-Rated podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Holly Tarquini, the founder of the F-Rating, which is like a fair trade stamp applied to all films directed and or written by women. It's really designed to help audiences find those films more easily. Usually I'm with my colleague, journalist and broadcaster Anu Anand, who keeps us on the straight and narrow, but she's away for this episode, so it's just me. Today, we're speaking to Bryony Hansen, who is the British Council's Director of Film. She is responsible for promoting UK film internationally. Previously, she directed the Script Factory Training Organisation, headed both Tyneside Cinema and the BFI Programme Unit and co-programmed London's LGBTIA Plus Film Festival. She also chairs BAFTA's Original Debut Award Jury and is a frequent critic for BBC Radio 4's Front Row, the film programme and Saturday review shows. And she's a regular on stage hosting a myriad of things. Welcome to the F-Rated podcast, Bryony. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. So first of all, I wonder if you could describe your job to us, please. (laughs) Yes, people often ask me that. So my job is a sort of dream job, really. It's a job where I, I work for the British Council, which is the the UK's cultural relations organisation and I think that's a kind of slightly grand way of saying that we are charged to bring build trust between people of the UK and people everywhere else it's really really simple we do it with lots of different tools in the box one of which is the arts so we use the arts the kind of cultural assets of the UK to go out and provoke conversations to to make those relationships in my case I use film so I'm director of the film team there is also a music team and an architecture design and fashion team and literature and visual arts and so forth but my bag is film so I it's a kind of two-part job one is about me and my team championing UK filmmakers getting out and about on a world stage and sort of saying this is what UK film looks like you think it's all James Bond no 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 it's much much wider than that much broader there are different kinds of people making work there are they are from different places we're not all from London we don't all look a certain way so it's my job to kind of get that message out to the wider world and champion those voices and then it's also my job our job to say to the UK film community look internationally you will find a whole host of potential collaborators of inspiration for your work. Your work will be better if you have an international outlook. We work a lot with international film festivals. So we bring film festivals in to the UK, to London, actually, sort of throughout the year. The top 16, uh, 17 film festivals we work with now. So Cannes, Tribeca, Toronto, Berlin and so forth. And we sit them in a screening room and force them to watch UK features, new UK features, in the hope that they'll take them back to Cannes, to Tribeca, Toronto and so forth. Anybody can put their feature film into that programme and Sundance, Tribeca and so forth will look at them all on a a level playing field. And obviously for us, it's like the ultimate showcase. You get your film into Sundance, the world is watching. We do a lot of work with new talent. So we have a travel grants programme taking short filmmakers to and VR makers to international festivals to attend labs, opening up their kind of international eyes, uh, often for the first time. We have a team uh, of international colleagues in over 100 countries and they will be looking at their communities, their arts communities and trying to identify, you know, what the demand is, what the interest might be in, in connecting with UK peers. 
at the film festival in Bath, I have to raise money every year to put the film festival on. And I often feel like the poor sister to music, literature, fashion, lots of the other arts. But I wonder whether that's true in your position or whether actually film is as brilliant and respected as it should be. Well, it's very interesting because I come from a background, same as you really, exhibition background, where film is absolutely the poor cousin, not le- in, in terms of the public funding. People believe that film can wash its face. Film, you just need to show a Bond film, um, sell some more popcorn and it'll be all right. Poetry, poetry is the thing that needs the support, needs the public funding. When I got to the British Council, what I realised was that actually in the in the sort of nuance of what we're trying to do, which is basically use film, not film for film's sake, not art for art's sake, but use these as tools for a kind of wider brief, which is the kind of cultural relations brief. And what I found was that actually film was such an amazing tool. I mean, I sort of would say this, wouldn't I? But, I, you know, film is the best tool we have. And that's partly because film can hit people who don't normally, who don't think they do art. So I may be in country X and I might think, well, I never want to read a poem. I never open a book. I never go in a gallery. But I have a view about this film and or TV piece. Um, you know, everybody does. I've, I've referenced Bond several times. But, you know, even if you haven't seen a Bond film, you have a, a you're likely to have an association. You're, you're likely to have an understanding of what a Bond, um, you know, what Bond is. So I think film is an amazing tool for this kind of work. You know, film can... It can entertain, it can educate, it can inform, it can challenge. You know, I can use film as a kind of Trojan horse to sneak ideas in under the guise of just having a nice time at the pictures. You know, some of the work that we do, which is about sort of changing the perceptions of what the UK is, you know, who the UK is, what we do, what we believe. You know, there's a one very strong impression that people get of the UK, you know, from years of history. They think of the Queen, they think of, you know, tea and jam, and they think of phone boxes. You know, that's that's a really strong, and in, in film terms, they think of, you know it's Downton Abbey it's Bond it's it's or it's kitchen sink you know kind of miserable housing estates it's one of those two things and and I you know it's it's my belief that it is my absolute job to say to people uh-uh you know there are different people making films they're making them in different ways I mean and I love that we can use cinema uh, so freely to do that I also really love that you can use cinema to criticize um or challenge or question the status quo in a way that I mean I suppose you can do it you can of course you could do that with art you can do that with poetry with literature but I feel it's an easier job to do it using film people have an expectation about the British Council that we're going to be champion you know British cinema and we're going to you know the UK is going to be a wonderful place and you know the UK is not always a wonderful place and I love that we have a you know a, a box of paints on you know with with what's who's making what at the moment to be able to say actually there aren't it's not all rosy here and there are big challenges ahead yeah a massive inequality so the f rating i founded it in 2014 when you know the usual story of 200 best top 250 films fewer than five percent were directed by women um, I don't think any of them were women of colour, even though films by women of colour make much more and do better at the box office than any other intersection. It doesn't mean that women of colour are, are being given the kinds of budgets to make the big films that get the most promotion and therefore get the most bums on seats. Have you noticed change? So you've been doing this for 11 years. Yeah. I mean, yes, 
to an extent. I mean, women of colour, not so much, but women generally, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of my jobs is to do the selector screening, so I get to look at a lot of features often first-time features, people kind of coming out of the traps and, you know, hoping to get their, their first feature or their, or their sophomore feature into, a, into an international festival. And actually, I haven't done this comparison from the, the year I started to, to right now, but I've just done a, a, a selection for a, a number of festivals in the last couple of weeks, and it's pretty much 50-50, um, male-female. Women of colour are there, but probably you know, lagging behind, there's probably not quite the the equality. And it's interesting because, you know, we have a, a kind of unwritten rule in our team, which is basically if somebody asks us for a film to represent a particular viewpoint or satisfy a particular event or, or you know, work, work in a particular context, our first point of call is to recommend a film by a woman. That's just, that's what we do. And then if we can't find one, then we go to a, a film by a man. It's been many years of having to rely on Gorinda Chada. Um, you know, if you want a kind of big, happy, box office, fun, family-friendly, you know, Gorinda Chada. Like, you know, what is really interesting is to see who are the, who are the new voices coming through. Um, and I think they're there, but I think it's, a, it's an uphill battle. It is, it, I mean, you could say the same, actually, about films by queer women or films with queer storylines. You know, back in the day when you referenced me programming what has now become BFI Flair was then the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival back in the day when we didn't have so many initials. But lesbian films were few and far between. We would sweat it out looking for an opening night film because there just wasn't enough to choose from. Now, I've just done a set of selector screenings and, you know, the, the four best films were films by women of, uh, by, by queer women, um, which was an amazing, you know, turnaround. And... You know, some of that is to do with social appetites changing um, and some of it is to do with some really strong interventions from, I don't want to say training schemes. People of colour have long said, oh, we don't need training schemes anymore. We just need the, you know, the wherewithal, the, 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 the funding and the backing to kind of get out there and do do the work we know we're capable of doing. And I think they're absolutely right. However, I think the, the um, queer women have definitely been helped by schemes like the BFI Flair uh, Mentee Programme, which has just had this incredible, you know, back catalogue of people. They really, they knew what they were spotting um, kind of, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. And I, I think those, those, those voices and those names are coming through now and, and you're seeing incredible um, films, you know, films we can all get really excited about and, you know, absolutely, punching you know high above their weight so I think it's a matter of time but I think it's going in the right direction and do you think I often think that the two most difficult kind of intersections are class and disability and that often rising to the top of so lots of the women that I know that are directing feature films with a decent budget are like me they're privileged white women and I don't know about so much about LGBT films, but I wonder if it's similar in that sphere, whether it's still the kind of privileged white, uh, able-bodied. No. Uh, OK, so I'm able-bodied, yes, absolutely. I can count on the fingers of one hand. Filmmakers with disabilities, the storylines that explore issues for people with disabilities they are so few and far between and that is a you know it's a massive shortfall in our industry class is an interesting one because obviously as you know it's like it's hidden you can't it's you know unless you literally ask people kind of where does their dad go to 
school it's really hard to fight to work out um but i think you know knowing the people who make films i think you're absolutely right i think there is still a, you know i mean and we know from all those workplace surveys that have happened from organizations like the ico or the bfi themselves or skill set we know that there is a real imbalance um and you're absolutely right it's people with white people with privilege who are still the ones kind of making the work with queer films, it's a little bit different, actually. Funnily enough, the films that I've been watching this week, I actually, I think that has been redressed. It seems to be slightly more level in terms of queer film. Um, but I think it's still, you're absolutely right, those are the next big targets, I think. Yeah, and the BFI and BAFTA are now doing proper kind of very comprehensive intersectional support, aren't they? Um, so recently we've had Correct. so many massive events that have changed everything so we've had brexit and covid and now we've got the war in ukraine and i just wonder what's life like at work now well i think the other thing we had was the murder of george floyd um so and and i think those four things are are the things that will define everything that happens from now on my organization was completely turned on its head by covid in the first instance partly because we have a very big international footprint so we have colleagues in in over 100 countries a very very big teaching operation teaching english um operation in china and of course one of our biggest centers is wuhan and so our operation in china closed down i mean you know a good month and a half before you and I had ever even taken it seriously, which had a catastrophic effect on our finances. So we were already in a quite difficult position, at which point COVID happened and we suddenly found that a really big chunk of our income was, you know, put on hold and it was a catastrophe. I am an eternally optimistic person and I believe that we will come out of this as a better organisation. I think there were a number of things that needed to be looked at. And funnily enough, one of them is linked to, I just referenced George Floyd, which was, I think, all big bureaucratic organisations, from the BFI to the BBC to every organisation worldwide, suddenly found itself under the microscope. And our organisation was absolutely correctly accused of institutional racism. If only if you look at the senior leadership of the organisation, which was quite monocultural and, you know, the lower paid people, you know, kind of working on the ground who were not monocultural. And, you know, that in itself is a really big symbol of, of institutional racism. The other side of that is, of course, an organisation like ours, which is founded, you know, 80 plus years ago at the point when the empire was still a thing. And it was the job of our organisation then to go out and say, yes, the UK is a marvellous, great organisation. Well, you know what? Those days are gone. And so it, it, it has meant taking some bits of the organisation kicking and screaming to look again at its practice, look again at the way it speaks. It's been a really painful process. I think we have all learned an enormous amount from it. I cannot imagine what it's been like being a person of colour in our organisation. I hope that we will not find ourselves in this, in this position again. I mean, it's a really tricky one because, of course, you know, at the same moment then when we were looking at ourselves ex- existentially and saying we cannot, we cannot be a colonial organisation, we have to, you know, work to honour the people of colour in the organisation, to amplify voices, to elevate people, 
at the same moment we were saying oh my god we can't pay the rent you know it's the first thing we think about when we get up in the morning and it's the last thing we think about when we go to bed how to how we can make our program a more and broadly a more accessible a more inclusive a more representative a, you know a fairer program than it ever has been in the 80 odd years leading up to this moment and then just finally the ukraine crisis was extraordinary because of course we have a big operation in Russia. We have colleagues in Russia who actually work at the embassy. They don't work in a British council. There's a history going back there, which I won't bore you with. But anyway, um, so we have a programme in Russia, but we also have a very big programme in, in Ukraine. And at the point when the war broke out, we were planning a one-year kind of celebration of the relationship between the UK and Ukraine immediately we thought, well, we'll just have to shelve that, that, you know, nobody wants to do anything like this. This is ridiculous. And our Ukrainian colleagues said, are you joking? If ever there was a time when we want to be pulling focus on Ukrainian arts and culture, it's right now. You know, make it as big as you can, shout about it from the rooftops. And for me, this was a green light. We were already planning a bit of uh, stuff around Ukraine, actually with our colleagues, our friends at Sheffield Dockfest. And Claire Stewart, who has recently taken over there temporarily, sort of set, set, turned around and sort of said, shall we go for it? And boy, did we go for it. And so we were able to launch our whole Ukrainian season at Sheffield Docks Fest with an amazing speech from Ukraine's first lady and uh, colleagues were able to attend even men were able to get out of Ukraine and, and join a delegation it was really a, a really affirming experience about the power of art to you know represent to give people voices to represent a truth to tell people what's happening and to to sort of stand on a soapbox and and shout for help or you know ask for support or um, it was just it was a wonderful experience and that's kind of kick-started the year which we're right now taking taking out taking on in in other art forms but I was quite proud that film was the thing that they chose to kind of lead on yeah and absolutely because it is what we all love it's one of the things that lockdown hopefully taught everybody was how dependent we are on films and television with it's 100 percent yeah <laughs> yeah so I wanted to ask you um we've been asking interfilm students and screenology students um some questions so screenology are uh, an organization in Bristol who teach a practical filmmaking degree and Interfilm of course you know very well are in charge of film education in the UK um, and their people are kind of aged 5 to 19 and Eva Interfilm um, said how creative do you have to be when you yourself are out promoting film do you see your job as a creative job uh, yes but possibly not in the way that Eva thinks all my life, I mean, it possibly, maybe I'm bossy, I don't know, but all my life people have sort of said, well, because my background is exhibition, so I've always been involved in, in showing films to audiences, trying to get an audience for films. People have constantly said to me, well, you should be a producer, like as in a film producer. And I've always shied away from it. I did once try it. Uh, when I was working uh, for what, what has become BFI Flair. I had a, a kind of, in the back in the day, there were only two programmers. This shows you that this dates it so badly because it was so binary. There was a boy programmer and a girl programmer. God help you if you didn't fit into those boxes. Um, but anyway, we did it together. And he and I did it for four years together. And at the end of the four years, we sort of said, you know what, we have been 
in a position of sort of judgment on people's films for all this time, but we've never tried to make one. So we should make one. So we set off together. He was going to write and direct it and I was going to produce it. And I thought, well, how hard can this be? Um, and I sat, there was a book. Uh, when I was a student, this book came out called The Gorilla, I think it was called The Gorilla Filmmaker's Handbook. And it was like, this was like before anyone had the, well, there was the internet, but you didn't, it wasn't like the internet now. And it was a sort of reference guide to kind of production houses and, you know, cameras and da, da, da. And I basically sat on the phone with the guerrilla filmmaker's handbook in front of me, bluffing my little heart out to all these people, pretending I knew how to make a film, which I, I mean, I've never known such an uphill learning curve in my whole life. It wasn't a curve, it was a bloody uphill mountain. And I got to the end of it and thought, actually, that is so thankless. Thank God there are other people who make films and it's not, it doesn't have to be me. So no, so I don't make films and I never really have. But in terms of um, being creative, I have always been, and I will be to the day I die, I'm a creative programmer. I'm a huge cinephile. I think I have been okay at my jobs because I'm a film fan and I I come at it from an audience perspective I don't come as it from a film studies perspective I'm not an academic by any stretch of the imagination um but I'm a film fan and so I think you know that there there's an element of creativity with that that I think helps me to do the job I do yeah and I'm with you I'm with you on the film I'm not as much of a cinephile as you but I'm a, definitely a film fan rather than a film intellectual or a academic I yeah. just love watching films yeah it's a constant source of delight I have um kids who are 15, uh, twins who are 15 and our son particularly is has is becoming a massive film fan and it's like a kind of like we were trying not to force it but it's so glorious so it's uh, I'm a, a BAFTA member and so I get access to um you know previews and now he's my kind of go-to plus one and it is heaven um absolute heaven and he's quite dismissive of things but I I don't care he's um he's sort of lapping it all up and that and that gives me real pleasure my daughter's the same. She's 17. And actually, I think she's got a more sophisticated taste than me. Oh, God, how infuriating. <laughs> I know. So she won't come and watch. She's more and more kind of discerning and won't oh come God. and watch the crappy films with me. <laughs> Leave you it's to right. the crappy films. I've got a 15-year-old. She'll come and watch crap. Oh, there me. you go. <laughs> so um, Catherine at Interfilm, she asks, do you have any networking tips um, how to approach networking and building your portfolio of connections. I think it's so often the number question. one question, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great question. And I will be completely honest with you. I am the crappiest networker I've ever met. Um, I'm an introverted extrovert, I think, in that I have a, I give an impression of being quite confident, but actually that hasn't always been the way. So the idea of kind of walking into a party where I know no one or a reception where I know no one and just making conversation is my worst nightmare. The best trick with networking, well, there's two. One is be bloody nice, like be yourself, be nice. And two is find the other person in the room who is not talking to anyone. And start That's with such them. such a good tip. I'm so taking that tip. But always, like they 
But everybody feels, well, like most people feel crap about networking. Like nobody wants to walk into a room when they don't know a soul. But if you find the person who doesn't, who isn't, they may, they may be like just getting a drink and then going back to their mates, but just grab them at that moment. Find the person who isn't talking to anybody at that moment and just barrel in there and say, you know, hey, I'm Bryony, who, who, why are you here? You know, um, who do you know? Or what, you know, like just, just try, and, try and ask them questions about why they're, why they're here. That's, that's the best thing. Uh, weirdly with COVID, I, I found I became... Um, <laughs> not reclusive but I really love staying in my neighborhood not going out so getting back on the horse now that things have opened up I definitely resisted it for a while like oh I can't be bothered to go to this thing I can't be bothered to go to that which is ridiculous because it's actually when you do go to things it's really pleasurable and you, you know once in a while I mean all the all the relationships I have work relationships I have now I met in sort of just forcing myself to go to things that I didn't really want to go to you know go to I mean First time I went to Cannes, where I knew no one. I was 20-some years old. I'd never been... It was the first festival I ever went to. Can you imagine? And I was dumped into Cannes with, like, 20 pence in my pocket, pretty much. I had a flat that was miles from anywhere. I didn't... It was all... You know, the can was designed at that point. I mean, it's still pretty much designed to make anybody who's not somebody feel crap. Um, but it was, you know, it took me three days to figure out how to get a ticket for anything. And I was really sweating because my I was employed at that point by the Tyneside Cinema. And, I, you know, we were on a bloody budget. And I knew that the fewer films I saw, the more expensive the trip had become for them. I couldn't... It was miserable. And I used to walk the streets kind of hoping to bump into people that I vaguely had seen at some conference or something. And, you know, it was a miserable experience. I remember it really distinctly. I also remember two people from that can, one of whom, they'd both be nameless, one of whom dead-eyed me, basically, who I did know that person, and they looked over my shoulder and, you know, I was not the most important person to them and they made me feel really crap. The other person... Um, was a journalist and he I had met him once in a tiny little environment I you know it was like in passing friend of a friend of a friend and he saw me kind of wandering past a table at a restaurant and sort of clearly thought I looked at and waved me over and bought me a drink and asked me to join in and that was the most amazing experience um because I was nobody and it was just it would it and you know those two experiences have really shaped my the way I am at a kind of cocktail party or a you know something I never resist somebody coming up and talking to me um because it is I just remember being that person I think I still am that person um with lots of armor on yeah I'm I empathize with everything that you're saying <laughs> completely <laughs> Um, so the final question that I'd like to ask you is if you were, if you could go back to your younger self and offer them some advice, do you know what you would say? Personant to the industry rather than life in general. Well, yes, life in general. I mean, life in general, the industry is probably the same, actually. I would probably say get on that bus, even though you don't know where it's going even if you're not quite sure how it's going to work out. I think the real thing is, like, what's the worst that could happen? You know, in that sort of situation, I guess all your clothes could fall off or, you know, but, but that's not going to happen, is it? You know, what? And even if it did, like, it would be fine. So I think relax, maybe relax is, is, is the word I'd use. 
That's brilliant. And it's really similar to a social media meme that I saw recently, which was the rule of five, which is if something is not going to matter at all in five years' time, spend no longer than five minutes worrying about it, thinking about it or regretting it. That is great advice. I might have to do that from now on. Yeah, very good. Friday, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and all of your insights. Thank you for your colleagues' questions as well. Really good to talk to you. Blimey, I I could genuinely speak to Bryony all day. She's got such a fantastic brain. Now, let me ask you a favour. Please could you like, subscribe and follow this podcast and do please take a moment to tell everyone you know about it on your social media channels. You are the best person to tell everybody about this podcast and to help us get it out there in the world. We'd be very grateful. Next week is the F-Rated Podcast final episode of the series and we've saved one of the best for last. It is part two of multi-award winning director Amara Santi talking about making Belle a United Kingdom and so much more. Do join us for that.